6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Well, we are in the last chapter of our review of the epistle of the Hebrews. And um, it's not the last meeting, because I'm going to suggest an addenda that I think you'll find interesting to the book uh, that we'll talk about when we get to the end. But the epistle of the Hebrews, one of the, one of the most important epistles uh, in the New Testament, often skipped by many for two reasons. One, it sounds like it's to the Hebrews, and most of us are Gentiles, so why, why, are we, why do we care? And the other reason is it does have a number of passages that are widely misunderstood because people don't understand the situation, the context, and so forth. And we've really dealt into that, and I, I'm, I'm uh, very, very pleased the way the Lord has brought together a lot of insights from a lot of places to make the to really open the book. So I hope this has been fruitful for you. But we are in chapter 13, the last chapter. Now, New Testament, of course, consists of 21, correction, 28 epistles, but seven of them are usually overlooked because they're written by Jesus Christ. You find them in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. There's 21 epistles in the New Testament. 13 are called the Pauline epistles because he signed them. And then there's a group of eight that are sometimes called the Hebrew epistles or Hebrew Christian epistles because they were written to the Hebrews. First, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John were written to, to Jewish readers, and Jude, and also Yaakov, Jacob, that we call James. But the Book of Hebrews, because it wasn't signed, is usually clustered with, the, with that group, because they're all written to the Hebrews. But from our point of view, as you probably know by now, uh, well, first of all, Romans and Hebrews are probably the two pivotal doctrinal epistles in the list. There are. Three, uh, uh, three different pastors that received letters from Paul, and they call, they're called the pastoral epistles. There are also three so-called prison epistles, because they were written while he was in prison. And actually four, I believe, because I think he was also one of those, for reasons that we'll review here in a little bit. The other thing we discover as we study these epistles, that the epistle of Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, all three of them turn out to be a well-designed trilogy on a pivotal verse of the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. This is, uh, uh, it turns out to be a very key concept, that who are the just? Well, that's what the book of Romans deals with in depth, in fact, even quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in making its arguments. How shall they live? That's what Galatians is all about. Galatians 3.11 quotes it just that way. And finally, of course, how do they shall live by what? By faith. And that verse is quoted just before we get into the Hall of Faith, as it's sometimes called, Hebrews 11. So it's, what's interesting about this that most people miss is this implies Paul wrote all three. They were designed as a unit, as a trilogy. Now, if you somehow could prove Paul didn't read them, it's even a bigger miracle because it's designed, of course, by the Holy Spirit in any case. But uh, each of these epistles use Habakkuk 2.4 as a cornerstone. And that verse, Habakkuk 2.4, became the 
battle cry of the Reformation. The Epistle of the Hebrews, the first seven chapters build up a case of Christology. Jesus, the new and better deliverer, better than angels, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, and on it goes. Then the next couple of chapters focus on a new and better covenant, better promises, better sanctuary, better sacrifice, and of course gets, uh, thus gets better results. Again, building a case to, to, that Jesus has replaced something that is now uh, uh, set aside, the Levitical system. Moses, the law, all of that. Tough stuff for a Jewish believer, especially at this time, because the temple hadn't fallen yet. This is written about A.D. 64. And uh, so the Jewish believer had a real problem because he had divinely appointed priests doing divinely appointed rituals in a divinely uh, uh, designated place that they now were being persecuted for having abandoned. So they're entertaining thoughts of going back to that. And the letter here is saying, don't do that. You don't understand what you're doing. It'll, your, in fact, your lives will be forfeit. So, okay, that finally brings you to chapters 10, and, 10, 11, and 12, which deals with the implications of all of this, a true and better response. Now, we inserted after chapter 12, because there's so much both implicit and explicit allusions to the kingdom, the, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, that uh, we took a session last time to review all that in broad terms. But now we're going to focus on the closing chapter of the epistle, the parting words by Paul, we believe. Uh, and we're going to have an addendum to this that we'll talk about next time, and you'll understand why I'm doing that when we get to, a little further into tonight's study. We're going to focus on what Jesus said, what he predicted, astonishingly predicted, about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, drawing primarily on Luke 21, which is not part of the Olivet Discourse, contrary to most uh, common presumptions. But we're focusing on chapter 13, the parting words of the author to his readers. Oh, one other thing, just in looking at the outline, very important to not let that go unmentioned, the five warnings, the danger of drifting in chapter 2, the danger of disobedience at the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, and the troublesome one for many, the progress towards maturity option, uh, 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 choices, in, in, in the, especially chapter 6, verse 6. Then in chapter 10, we incurred, incurred the fourth of these five warnings, the danger of willful sin. And then in chapter 12, time before last, the warning against indifference. It's really interesting. And all these, by the way, are a designed buildup. So many people treat these five warnings as little parentheses stuck in the outline. No, it's the other way around. They are the primary milestones of the epistle. And the main thrust of the author to his readers is to not drift. Be careful that you're not, in effect, being disobedient. But what you need to do is progress toward maturity. All the readers, I mean, it was addressed to readers who were saved. They were justified by Christ. Again and again and again throughout the epistle, the writer says, let us, let us. He puts himself in that same category. This is not written to unbelievers. To, to make any presumptions on that will get, get you really confused. No, it's, it's, to, it's to people who have accepted Christ but are wavering in their commitment and they're failing to progress.
and, and just being indifferent to where they're going. So, because they are beneficiaries of better blood and a better sacrifice than the whole Levitical Mosaic system. That's the main thrust all the way through here. Let's remind ourselves that this is divinely authorized. All Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The actual word is God-breathed. God-breathed in the Greek. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. Those sound like good fancy words. What do they mean? For doctrine tells you what's right. For reproof tells you what's not right. For correction, how to get it right. And instruction, how to stay right. So I don't know if that helps. It puts maybe a little more tangibility on those, those uh, academic words. They should rattle when you shake them. They should be real to you. Okay. Let's just jump in then. Chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's interesting. Brotherly love. Angels. The four words, in the first sentence, there are four words in English, love of the brethren. They're actually, it's one word in the Greek. The word Philadelphia. Entertaining angels unawares. Um, there's one example we can think of, and that's Genesis 18 and 19, where Abraham entertained these three strangers. One was the Lord himself, and the other were two angels that had a, an appointment, a mission, down in Sodom and Gomorrah the next day. And uh, that's just an example. There are probably many others. But the main point here, there are cases where the people didn't realize they're angels. And uh, I've seen some people like that on the freeway. People that were put there, driving too slow, just to keep me from killing myself. <laughs> you know the difference between an idiot and a maniac, don't you? The idiot's the guy in front of you not driving fast enough. The maniac's the guy that's passing you, see. But often I've been in a situation where I've been frustrated because I had a sort of that I realized, you know, be careful. That was probably put there by the Lord to keep me from doing something stupid. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm have my tongue in my cheek, but not 100%. I mean that uh, seriously. Okay, verse 3. Remember them that are in bonds, is bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Boy, we need to do that. You know, there's a whole ministry, Voice of the Martyrs, that really focuses on the Christians today that are in bondage, literally, that are being uh, slaughtered in all... All over the world, there are situations like that. We're so comfortable, so secure, so distant from that, so far, that uh, we tend to treat that academically. No, we should hold them up in prayer. When the Lord puts that on your heart, find a place, get on your knees. God may have, for, if for, for reasons of His own, he, he chooses to respond to prayer, to do things through your prayers. And so if you feel led to, if, uh, because of an announcement or something comes to your consciousness, of the, of the Christians that are in bondage, in, in, in adversity, um, take the time to pray. Um, you have no idea what may be going on and how essential that prayer may be for what God is trying to do. Prayer is God's way of enlisting you in what He wants to do. Many people don't realize that. You know, it sounds like we go to Him with my little want list, you know. No, 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 no. No, it's supposed to be a dialogue. It's supposed to be a fellowship thing. And furthermore, it's God's motive to have you involved in what He's doing.
And there's examples of this, 2 Timothy 1, Onesiphorus. All believers are in the same, the point here, are all, we're all in the same body, the body of Christ. And we're all members. And uh, Paul deals with that extensively in the 12th chapter of First Californians. Yeah? Okay. Marriage is, an, is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. This is just straightforward. You know, we could spend an hour on sermonizing each one of these if we wanted to here. But the word bed here, by the way, is koite, which literally referring to the marriage bed. It's a term referring to sexual intercourse. Marriage is honorable in all and the, the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Heavy stuff. Hebrews 13, let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The word conversation, it's just, we use that word in contemporary English, it's taken quite a different meaning the way we use it. We think conversation is chit-chat. The word originally really meant a person's character, his life, his behavior. Uh, let your conversation, you might want to substitute the word behavior, let your behavior be without covetousness and uh, be free from materialism. And uh, the basis of, of all of this, of course, is God promises to provide your every need. And you should be looking to Him, not Madison Avenue, to, to shape up your desires. And... Uh, he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's simply a quote from Deuteronomy 31, 6 and also Joshua 1.5. Same basic concept is there. So that we, you and I, may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And boy, is that a precious, precious portion of Scripture if you're going off to Iraq or in the military service. I can remember when I left um, California to go back to the Naval Academy. That was one of the things that, that I was very serious about and, and, and uh, very conscious, had absolutely thinking of the more distant future, no fear because the Lord is my helper. And he, that's actually two quotes. The first is an Old Testament quotation, uh, Deuteronomy 31.6, Josh 5. And the second one that we're reading here is uh, Psalm 118, verse 6. The Hallel Psalm. Okay. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. So about, in other words, your elders that are teaching you. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a spiritual connection here. Remember them which rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. In other words, their behavior. And the word remember actually means to observe carefully. That's not just recall it. No, no. Remember in the sense of pondering it. Observe carefully the people that are ruling over you. And in chapter, we went through the whole chapter 11 a couple of chapters ago. And in that chapter, it was, it was put there primarily to encourage us to imitate them. And each one of those, they weren't, it wasn't just all the people that were faithful. It specifically focused on those that were faithful in the sense of patient endurance in the, all through the Old Testament. Now here... He's again saying to imitate the faith of more recent saints. See, the chapter 11 was the historical ones all through the Old Testament. But now he's saying 
Think about the people that are your leaders now and imitate the faith of more recent saints, in effect. The people that have been your previous teachers. And, uh, okay. And again, the word conversation here is, is the old English word. There are about really only six or seven words in the King James translation that you need to be sensitive to. And this is one of them because it, obviously the word conversation has changed its meaning since uh, it was translated by, in the days of King James. There are a couple others. And uh, now some Bibles, that's one reason I like the Schofield so well, they reverse that. When you get to that word in the scroll, there'll be two vertical lines and it'll put behavior. Then in the margin, it'll say conversation. It takes the, in just a, half a dozen cases or so, it takes the old word and puts it in the margin, puts a new word in there, but marks it so that you can tell it's, it's an editorial thing they did when they printed it. But uh, no, no, again, either way, it's no big deal. Some people, do, do you, if you, it really, if the King James bothers you, you can go to the new King James, but it somehow, to me, it still loses the ma majesty of it all. So, uh, it is what, it, and, and and by the way, the the uh, the, the old English communicates a lot more than modern English does. The these and thous are a form of in intimacy that we lose in our in our language. Well, let's talk about teachers. He's talking about teachers here. There are three there are three characteristics of good teachers. We're going to find three characteristics of bad teachers later. But in verse seven, there are three characteristics of good teachers. They proclaim biblical truth. It's astonishing how many churches you can go to at the pulpit on Sunday morning, they don't open their Bible. They got a wonderful sermon, but they don't proclaim biblical truth. And uh, the other character of a good teacher is that they are men of faith. They are really men of faith, not just articulate, bright communicators. They live a spiritual lifestyle worthy of imita in, uh, imitation. And that's that's that's... Those are three characteristics of good teachers. Then we get to verse 8, which is widely misquoted. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. In the context of the letter, it makes a lot of sense, but it makes no sense to take it out of context. A text apart from its context, they often point out, is a pretext. The context that it's in simply teaches that Jesus can give believers victory in their trials. In other words, the one that protected them in the past is the one that can protect you today and will protect you in the future. That's the thought that's in the quote here. And because uh, he brought victory for the distant saints of chapter 11. All, the, all those saints in chapter 11 were Old Testament saints. And it's also Jesus Christ that has given victory to their more recent Teachers, to the listeners. He's not, Jesus has not always been the same. The critic could say that's not always true. He's, and he's right, because until the incarnation, all eternity past, Jesus only exists in the form of God. That's the very phrase that is used in Philippians 2, in the Kenosis 5 to 11 in chapter 2. When, he, when Jesus... Uh, when the babe was born in Bethlehem, Jesus became man. And not just for three and a half years, or for 30 years, or whatever. Forever. There's a man sitting on the throne of God today. Now, he became mortal man. And that's when he became subject to hunger, and to thirst, and to fatigue, weakness, and even death. Inconceivable that the creator of the universe would put himself in a position where he could die 
Wow, we know we don't. We, it's that's part of the gospel. Paul defines it such. The first four verses of First Corinthians fifteen, and after his resurrection, he changes again. He's no longer limited to four dimensions as we are, but at least eleven, maybe more. His, his, he changed to immortal man. So from not being a man at all to being a mortal man to being an immortal man. But he he wasn't in that sense, in in, in a in a uh, physiological sense. He's not the same. And so let's not, don't misapply that verse. He's, he, he changed in some very profound ways. Anyway, moving on to verse 9. Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which, were not pro- which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. So, divers and strange doctrines. Divers means... Um, diverse, in other words. In other words, in contrast to the unity of sound doctrine. And that's been the emphasis of the writer from chapter 1 through chapter 10. That we have unity. That this whole program of the priesthood, the Levitical priest, the Mosaic law, even though it's now behind us, it's part of a unified strategy of God's plan of redemption. And when he says strange here means doctrines that are not found in Scripture. Boy, you know, you, you, you see the strangest stuff come through the Christian community. Gold dust and all kinds of, these things come and go. Well, how do you know what's real and what isn't? Very simple. Is it in the Scripture? If it's not in the Scripture, I'll pass. I'll pass. Doesn't mean it's not true. I'm not going that far. But I'm not interested. If, it's not, if you can't show me the scripture, be my guest. See you later. Is it in the scripture? Don't be carried about with divers and strange doctrines. Be established with grace and not with meats which have not profited them that have occupied therein. Any teaching that is not based on scripture, no matter how spiritual the movement may appear to be, it's, from my mind, suspect. And I suggest to you, in Paul's mind, is suspect. Not saying it's evil, but it's certainly suspect. Okay, we said there are three characters of good teachers. Proclaim biblical truth, they're men of faith, and they live spiritual lifestyle. Terrific. Here are three characteristics of false teachers. And you can see them every day on television. They promote false and diverse doctrines. It's astonishing what is being promoted. And I guess it's not astonishing when you realize that it's big money involved. Big money involved. And most of them emphasize the external rather than the internal. For example, like eating certain meats or, or, or what have you. Their teaching fails to produce effective spiritual results. And it's interesting how you... It, it occupies the news in this location or that location. I won't mention specifics. I'm not here to point to any particular fingers. But it isn't long before it evaporates. And there's now a new buzz somewhere else. Left and right. Anyway, continuing verse 10. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Now what he's alluding to here, you see, is it was the, the privilege of the priests to partake in what was going on 
We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Now here the word altar here is a word that means the whole burnt offerings which stood in the court of the priests in the temple of Jerusalem and the food that was upon the altar. You see, when, they, when, you, when you did an offering, the priest would offer it on the altar, but they had a participation in that. We have a participation, he's pointing out, that they can't participate in. See, the food that was there was part of the support of the Levitical priests. Okay? Now, that altar's been replaced. Believers have an altar to which those who are still trusting the tabernacle have no right. See, bear in mind, keep in mind, the, the, the reader here is a Jewish person who is flirting with the idea of going back to Judaism. They've left Judaism, baptized in Christ. They are Christians. But they're getting abused. They're losing their property. They're being persecuted. And they're thinking about going back and at least pretending they're back in the, getting back in that system to get the pressure off. And the, and, uh, the writer here is emphasizing you don't have that option. And that's what we dealt with, in, especially in uh, ch chapter 6 and chapter 10 and so on. Okay. But as you, by virtue of their service in the tabernacle, they are still bringing blood sacrifices, which shows that they have not trusted in Jesus as the final sacrifice. Okay. This also tells you, by the way, it's still going on, which means this was written prior to AD 70. There is now only one sacrifice, as far as the Christian is concerned. Jesus Christ on the cross. To participate in these other rituals is to deny that. Therefore, it is uh, un, 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 it's blasphemous. There's only one food, not the stuff that comes from the altar, Jesus himself. So the writer reminds the readers that while normally priests could partake and eat of sin sacrifice, there was one sin sacrifice the high priest could not eat. He's going to zero in here, even within the Levitical system. Many people don't realize this. And that's the sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the once-a-year program. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time. As we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.